Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. We're in Arkansas again this week. It is week two. Beautiful natural state. Yep. And I definitely saw pictures of that when researching this time around. Excellent. Excellent. Well, to get us in the, the mood, I have some weird laws that I discovered uh, from Arkansas. Very nice. Um, this first one's kind of bizarre to me because I don't know how you would actually prosecute this crime, but it's illegal for the Arkansas River to rise above the Main Street Bridge in Little Rock. Wow. So the, are they arresting like the weather gods? Like what? I don't know. Maybe they're like penalizing the river. I don't know. <laughs> they just like give it a spanking. Bad river. Naughty, naughty river. <laughs> Uh, there's also a law on the books in Arkansas that says that teachers cannot receive a pay raise if they decide to bob their hair. What? What? So I guess in the case of Arkansas, like short hair, you better care because you ain't getting paid if you're a teacher. That's kind of really ridiculous. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I, I wish I had more info about how this law came into being. but Right. Because several of my teachers would not have gotten paid. I know. I feel like there's like that universal like mom slash teacher haircut oh yeah anyway uh next up a little bit of domestic violence for you a man cannot legally beat his wife for more than a month that's against the law so (laughs) if it's like 27 days 28 days you're fine but once it goes above like 30 or 31 you're just screwed yep yep then 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 people will actually intervene and be like gosh darn it what the hell yeah very weird the next one I have for you is, I, I, I don't know, you know me, I, I'm all for limiting noise pollution, but this one's just so precise and weird. It's illegal in Arkansas to honk your car horn at a sandwich shop after 9 p.m. Okay. So if the sandwich shop said, like, honk if you love tuna or something, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it was past 9 o'clock, you'd get in trouble. Yes. Or if they're like, hey, we have curbside pickup, just like honk when you get here. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of other weird weird restaurant rules, uh, also in Arkansas, it's illegal to yell at your children while going through a drive-in restaurant. So like if you're at at McDonald's, uh, yeah, you can't yell at your kids. You'll get arrested. That is bizarre. (laughs) These are some really, these are like the weirdest ones we've had in a while, I think. I know, I know. Uh, this one's a bit a bit far-reaching, but in Fayetteville, Arkansas, it's illegal to kill, quote, any living creature, and that includes bugs, great and small. Wonderful. So uh, if you're a Buddhist, this is a great state for you to be in. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, however, don't get a bug zapper in the summertime. You're just going to have to suffer. Oh, yeah, that part sucks. I totally have a bug zapper out back because I need it. My yard is just, like, so buggy and horrible half the time. Uh, so Little Rock itself has a lot of crazy ass laws, which I think is funny because it's like the state capital. So one of the ones that I feel echoes some other laws that we've seen is that in Little Rock, it's illegal for men and women to flirt on the street. You can get up to 30 days in jail if you get caught flirting. Damn. Also in Little Rock, it's illegal for dogs to bark after 6 p.m. Love to know how they enforce that one. Yeah, who's going to tell them that? <laughs> In Little Rock, it's illegal to walk your cow down Main Street after 1 p.m. on a Sunday. So get that morning Sunday stroll in if you're going to walk that cow. Uh, I I walk my cow whenever I damn well please, okay? That's right, it's America. (laughs) 
And then one that's kind of funny, because it applies to the entire state of Arkansas, is that it's illegal to mispronounce Arkansas. So you can't say Arkansas. I guess if you say Arkansas, you're going to get, you know, a fine at least, something. Damn. I mean, I, I kind of support that law. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of do. No linguistic diversity for you? Nope. <laughs> so so those are pretty much some strange-ass laws that I found for, for Arkansas. Those were very weird. Yes, very, very weird. Some of them very upsetting as well. Yes, yes. Alrighty, so you have a true crime story for me. I, I do have a true, true crime story for you. It's a little different than what we usually cover on Roadside Horror Show, but I think you'll dig it because I just, you know, when I was looking for my true crime story for this week, I kind of just kept coming back to this particular story and this particular these particular people um as i as i dug further into some of the near-do-wells of arkansas history let's see if it's one that i almost covered i'll laugh if it is but great minds and all so today we are heading to folk arkansas and that's f-o-u-k-e it's a little town near the southwestern tip of the state it's located in miller county and it's dead at the intersection of U.S. Highway 71 and Interstate 49. Falk is just about 10 miles west of the Red River, which is like a very large river that runs through Arkansas, 17 miles north of the Louisiana state line, and 11 miles southeast of the twin cities of Texarkana, Arkansas, and Texarkana, Texas. Oh, I've only ever heard bad things. (laughs) Texarkana? Yeah. It's not too bad from what I hear. It's kind of a, it's a weird little place because it is that sort of nestled area between where like Arkansas, Texas, and Louisiana meet. So it's definitely a, a whirlwind of culture. It would seem so if like that's, you know, a, where everything is. Mm-hmm. It's just every time I've read about it in like a book, each time it's been the setting of a book, it's always just terrible and crime ridden. <laughs> so I don't know how it really is, but according to the fiction that I've read, it's terrible. <laughs> well, duly noted and duly noted. Falk is a pretty small town in size and in population. It's only about 1.36 square miles in size, and it has about 880 residents today. From what I can find by way of town history, it's always been pretty small despite of or maybe because of its close location to Texarkana. Now, the land that the town is built on was acquired as part of the Louisiana Purchase back in the early 19th century. And the area saw little influx of settlers, but it was steady. So a little trickle of people that kind of came to settle in this area um, through Arkansas statehood, which happened in 1836, and through the end of the Civil War. Then in 1889, a Confederate cavalry veteran and Seventh-day Baptist minister, James Franklin Shaw, was searching for a location where his congregation could build a new community. They were looking to build someplace that would align better with their religious practices. Uh, So his congregation were Seventh-day Baptists, which means that they believe the Sabbath is the seventh day of the week, which is Saturday. Now, at the end of the 19th century, this kind of caused a lot of problems for them because there are things like blue laws. I'm sure you're pretty familiar with blue laws, Eden, since we still have some in Pennsylvania. Yes. But for those of you who aren't, it's basically a series of laws 
or a nickname for a series of laws that prohibit activities you can do on Sunday. So things like working on Sunday or certain commerce practices, like you can't, for example, in Pennsylvania, buy a car on a Sunday. And other states, it's also uh, prevents certain retail activity. So basically, because they believed that the Sabbath was on Saturday, they wouldn't work on Saturdays. And Sunday was just another old day to them, so they would work. So that kind of put them to conflict with a lot of the communities around them because this was back when, you know, you had a six-day work week. So they had a lot of trouble finding employment that would be sensitive to their religious beliefs and also not getting in trouble with the law. So Shaw's congregation finally was able to find a location uh, that was about 11 miles south of Texarkana and two miles south of Boggy Creek. And at Boggy Creek, there was a railroad termi- terminal that led to a sawmill owned by a man named George Folk. And George Folk decided that, you know what, we need more people in the area. I'm going to offer this congregation a reasonable price on my land that I own and also provide them a deal on lumber so they can build their town. The congregation was so thankful that they decided to name the town after Falk. Okay, that's cool. Falk's remained a pretty small community, as I said before, but it did make national news in the early 1970s. Uh, I like to think of this story as a little bit of a twofer for Roadside Horror Show. And that's because a local man named Bobby Ford reported a terrifying attack by a strange hairy creature with red eyes. Oh. That's right. Falk, Arkansas has its own cryptid creature. Sweet. <laughs> Everything's better with a cryptid creature. Right? Uh, so it's dubbed the Falk Monster. Other residents in Falk and the Buggy Creek area also started seeing a big foot-like creature in the 70s as well. And this creature was also blamed for the destruction of some local livestock in the 70s as well. Uh, in 1972, The Legend of Boggy Creek, which is a semi-factual documentary-style horror movie that was based on Bobby Ford's a- encounter with the monster, began... Is that where I heard it before? Though? Yes. Okay, yes. it sounded familiar. Um, so this movie came out, and it started playing in movie theaters, and it was a hit in drive-in theaters in particular. The film was a pretty decent boss- box office success, especially considering it only cost like $160,000 to make, but it ended up grossing... $20 million at, at the box office. Wow. Yeah, it, re- it really helped put Boggy Creek and, by extension, Falk on the cryptic country map. Uh, you probably heard of it, Eden, too, because there were, like, a ton of follow-up movies. Like, there's been a, a Falk monster movie pretty much every decade. So there were a couple in the 70s, a couple in the 80s, one in the 90s, and then a couple in the early 2000s. Okay. Some of them are straight-up horror movie sequels to The Legend of Boggy Creek. Other ones are more, like, documentaries that talk about the movie and the monster. Okay, yeah, because just the Boggy Creek name sounds really, really familiar. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It is pretty much Falk's biggest claim to fame. In fact, when I looked on TripAdvisor to see what the heck I could do while visiting Falk, uh, I was told that I could stop by the number one of two things to do attractions in Falk, and that was the Monster Mart. Uh, I encourage you to Google a picture of the Monster Mart, by the by, because it is fantastic. It's, it sounds pretty awesome. It's basically this convenience store that has like gifts and displays and information about the Falk Monster and also about how it's depicted in the, the Legend of Boggy Creek films. And when you look at the convenience store, it's this big, huge sign that has like Monster Mart on it with a, like the face of like a Bigfoot creature like in the middle of it. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, I want to go to Falk just to check out this store, honestly. Oh, wow. Yeah. Right? I like it. <laughs> 
But I'm not really here today to talk about the Falk monster anymore. That's not the type of monster that I'm interested in telling you guys about. The monster that I'm going to talk about today is one that preyed on the faith of his followers. This is the disturbing story of Tony Alamo and the Alamo Christian Foundation. Oh, okay. So is this like a cult? It is a cult. And I feel... Nice. I, I know we haven't had the opportunity to cover a cult. We've chatted a little bit here and there about them. Um, and we've had like close encounters of the cultish kind. But this is definitely... Um, Something that struck me as so weird because it did happen in this small little corner of Arkansas. And you would think, given the size and some of the pop culture uh, relevance of Tony Alamo's later activities, that it would be something more people would know about. See, I recently, I watched this Hulu thing. It was from A&E and it was like this uh, thing on like cults and extreme beliefs. Mm -hmm. And you got to listen to like survivors of these places like talk about them. And it was just so nuts i loved every minute of it nice it is always it's it's kind of like that startling revelation when you hear somebody who is living in a cult and think how easily they got like kind of sucked in and manipulated because i feel like a lot of these cults prey on people who are vulnerable or having a tough time in life right absolutely a lot of things is you know we'll make you part of the group we'll make you feel special mm -hmm. you have a family with us or we can help you out. You you need you're trying to do like this big self help thing. Mm -hmm. You know we can help you. We have the answers that you're seeking, and people get suckered in because they're at a low point in their life, and they just want someone who understands. Mm -hmm. For sure, and that's definitely what Tony Alamo did. So let's talk a little bit about the man before we talk about his activities with his religious foundation. So Tony Alamo was born Bernard Laser Hoffman, September 20th, 1934, in Joplin, Missouri. Now, his father was a Jewish immigrant from Romania. And when Alamo was a teenager, he'd left Joplin behind for California. Uh, after that, a lot of the info about Alamo's life gets a bit suspect, since I could only really find information that was from his own claims about his life. It's, it's very murky. So, for example, according to Alamo, after a time in Los Angeles, California, he started using the names Marcus Abad and Mark Hoffman and had some mild success as a pop singer while working in the recording industry in various capacities. Oh, weird. Yeah, super weird. So that we're talking like maybe like the late 50s is when he was kind of like working in that industry. So he has like a Charles Manson thing going on. A, a little bit. I think I would say he's a little bit more successful than Manson. But yeah, I think there's some similar. That's a good uh, analysis because there's some similar factors around his charisma and just knowing how to like yeah, reach people, that sort of thing. Ugh, okay. I've already got chills. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> now, when asked about this time, Alamo has said that he recorded a hit single in the early 60s and I couldn't find any documentation of it. And he also said that he was managing musical acts at that time, including, but not limited to, The Beatles, The Rolling Stones, and The Doors. Again, huh. I couldn't find any independent evidence of any of these claims. So we're already dealing with somebody who lies and exaggerates and thinks that he's the bee's knees. Great. Wonderful. I was able to verify some information about Alamo's life in a couple different sources. So I know for sure that Alamo ended up in jail on weapons charges in 1966. After that, he was released and he met a woman named Edith Opal Horn. Now, Edith was a two-time Jewish divorcee 
and she was a single mom. She'd originally moved to Hollywood years earlier to become an actress, but things didn't quite work out in her favor. Now, by the time she hooked up with Alamo, Edith was supporting herself and her young daughter by scamming local churches. Oh, wonderful. Yep. She yep. sounds like a good person, too. Mm-hmm. She would basically pretend to be this uh, itinerant preacher and missionary who needed money to continue to minister to folks. And she would tell the story about, you know, she was from Arkansas. She was actually from Alma, Arkansas. And she would tell these church leaders who she was petitioning for, for cash that she was raised Jewish and she had a revelation from God. And that's why she wants to give her life to the church and spread Jesus's message. Yada, yada, yada. You kind of get where I'm going. Uh, yeah. So when Tony hooks up with Edith, they eventually realize, hey, wait a minute, with his charisma and my know-how... I think we have something special here. Let's get hitched. A match made in fucking heaven. Mm-hmm. Great. So once they get married, they kind of realize that Mark Hoffman and Edith Horn aren't really the snazziest names for a set of preachers. So they changed their names to Tony and Susan Alamo. I'm pretty sure I went to school with a Mark Hoffman, so it's a little bit weird. <laughs> now... After the Alamos got married, uh, they changed their name, as I said, although Tony will still tell you that he didn't get married or he didn't change his name due to the marriage to Susan. He actually changed his name to Tony Alamo because he thought it would help his music career because he wanted to be kind of uh, recognized as one of those Italian-American singers who were popular in the 60s. So, you know, people like Frank Sinatra, Perry Como, all those folks. Okay, it just, it sounds like a completely made up fucking name. I'm right. gonna say that right now. Hundred percent, hundred percent. If you said my name is Mark Hoffman, I'd be like, "All right, Mark Hoffman, that sounds legit." But hi, I'm Tony Alamo. <laughs> no, no, that's a stage name. Like, isn't no. Alamo like a Spanish word anyway? <laughs> yeah, it is. It's not even Italian. That's why I'm like, "Where is he getting Italian from?" In my head, is what I said. I think because it has an O ending. Mm-hmm, probably. And a lot of Italian names have an O or an I ending. Yeah, probably. Either way, by the late 1960s, Alamo and Susan had fully converted to Christianity, and they had officially begun a church called the Music Square Church in Hollywood, California. Now, the couple basically focused on passing out religious tracts and preaching on the streets of Hollywood. They, what year was this? Uh, this was like the late 1960s. So uh, okay. they got married in... 66 67 so they are sort of contemporaries very much so of of charles manson actually they are kind of operating in that like hippie drenched la of the late 60s early 70s yeah okay and um they do kind of use a lot of the hippie philosophy of like communal living and you know it's all for the greater good of our, our church they use a lot of this those tactics it's very interesting how they kind of manipulated the 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 sentiment at the, of the times, just like Manson did, to kind of twist it into this this cult. And it completely makes sense, too, because it's like, you know, get behind one of the biggest subcultures or countercultures of the time and indoctrinate them. Yep, exactly. So the really insidious thing to me, though, that the Alamos did, not that, I mean, cults are always a little bit insidious, but they really focus on ministering to folks who were on Skid Row. And that would be folks who were homeless, uh, down on their luck, maybe addicted to drugs or alcohol. Uh, also, prostitutes were another favorite group that they would target with their, their message. They were self-proclaimed, quote-unquote, Jesus freaks. And that's kind of, again, one of those 1960s, early 70s evangelical Christian movements that very much aligned with the sentiments of the counterculture at the time. Yeah. 
The Alamos preached a really weird-ass message, though. They focused on this very fiery, vengeful form of Pentecostalism. Ooh, wonderful. I know. My favorite type. I love fire and brimstone <laughs> preachers. I know. Because what do you like more? What's going to make you feel closer to God than saying you're going to hell if you don't do this? Exactly. He's an all-loving God, except when he's not. Exactly. <laughs> he's all about love. Now do this or you'll go straight to hell or you'll be punished for all eternity. Exactly. <laughs> so... The messaging, the message behind this, this Pentecostalism that the Alamos were preaching was really like this focus on not necessarily the the scripture. They did talk about the scripture a lot. They believed in only the King James Bible. That was all they used. They also had a very um, strong belief in modern day miracles and revelations. So the idea that miracles happen every day and that God can speak to you. Uh, Tony in particular kind of used the thing that Susan was using before they got together. And he would say that, you know, when he was at a business meeting in Los Angeles in the early 60s, he got a vision from God and God told him he needed to spread the message of Jesus. So he immediately converted from Judaism to Christianity. And that's why he's here preaching to these people today. Oh, wow. Okay, great. Exactly. So that's kind of like the religiosity, that vibe that they have. And then there's the other crazy ass part of their church. And that's their virulent anti-Catholicism conspiracy theories. So they were. You know what? We're we're having some weird parallels with our story, and you'll <laughs> understand when I get to it. Nice, nice. Uh, like they were very anti-Catholic, which wasn't super uncommon in the '60s, but they kind of verged on this insanity. So at one point, like the Alamo said, the Pope was actually the Antichrist, and that. He was abducting children and drinking their blood, like all kinds of crazy nonsense about the Pope and that, you know, Catholics were out to get good God-fearing Christians. So that is the form of church that the Alamos put forward. Very nice. Mm-hmm. Loving these people more every minute. Yep. Yep. So you can definitely see. So it's like basically they're recruiting these people who are already vulnerable Telling them that, you know, there's miracles out there. They just need to believe and find it and telling them about the old miracles they've witnessed, but then making them feel paranoid and scared and othering the world outside. So it's, it's a very effective recipe for a cult. The other things that the Alamos laid out for their followers kind of increase this cult-like behavior. As they started to recruit more and more people, they laid out this really strict moral code. And their code prohibited things like drug use, homosexuality, adultery, birth control, and abortion. And it really focused on community or communal living. Church members were also expected to take part in acts of evangelizing, so spreading the message of the Alamo ministry and handing out religious tracts. And they were also expected to take a vow of poverty. Oh, okay, except the cult leader is not going to take that same vow. Exactly. Oh, did you know that, um, like, you know how nuns and stuff, like, take, like, a vow of poverty? Yeah, and priests don't. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Do you know that priests don't? <laughs> I, I do, because when I was growing up, we had a monsignor who drove a Cadillac. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You went to Catholic school, too. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, some priests, if they're, like, in certain orders, they'll take a vow of poverty, like the Franciscans, but most of them don't. Yeah. It's just crazy. It's like, so the nuns basically just have to... Live off the Suck church. Suck it up and deal with not mm-hmm. having any money. And then priests are like, yep, I'm going to go buy this. Mm-hmm. So this vow of poverty, too, is even worse for, for the Alamos followers because they not only agreeing to this vow of poverty, but they also have to turn over every, all of their assets to the church. Oh, okay. Yep. So taking a page out of L. Ron Hubbard's playbook there. <laughs> and, yeah. I uh, mean, it makes sense from a cult standpoint, but, mm-hmm. you know. For sure. 
By the mid-70s, the Alamos had several hundred followers, and they were growing really large. They decided that it was a little too expensive for them to continue to grow the church in California, so they decided to relocate the church's headquarters to Arkansas, where Susan had grown up. As part of this move, they also changed the church's name from the Music Square Church to the Holy Alamo Christian Church Consecrated. Beautiful. Ooh, that was a mouthful. Anyway, so in Arkansas, that's where things kind of start to get even crazier and fit that kind of culty vibe that we all know. The Alamos moved there. The land was cheap, so they built themselves a compound. They actually built a couple compounds. They built one uh, in northwestern Arkansas and then also one in southwestern Arkansas as well. So at these compounds, they built basically bunkhouses for people to live in. Their followers were expected to eat, pray, and sleep together. And these bunkhouses were huge. They would sleep as many as 20 people. They didn't always have indoor plumbing. It was basically like camping. Meanwhile, the Alamos lived on a very nice house that was built on the compound. (laughs) Of course they did. Mm -hmm. Why not? Why not? Um, And it doesn't stop there. So not only uh, are they building these compounds, but the Alamos are also using funds from the church to launch a bunch of business ventures. They basically start opening things like a grocery store, retail stores. Uh, They opened a country western wear shop. They opened a restaurant. And most of these places were staffed by members of their quote-unquote church, who basically worked for free. By 1978, the Alamos controlled 29 businesses in western Arkansas. Holy crap. Mm Mm-hmm. Obviously, while the Alamos are living in these lavish quarters in the church compound, some followers start, started to grow discontent and leave the church. But it was never such a large bleed of followers that it caused the Alamos any trouble just yet. How big was their quote-unquote congregation? Uh, at its height, it was several thousand people. Holy crap. Yeah, it was a pretty big church. So like, they get so big that they open up branches of the church in Nashville, Chicago, Brooklyn, and Miami Beach on top of having satellite churches in Los Angeles and Arkansas. Wow. Yeah. It's kind of crazy that they got so big. But are you ready for an even more crazy little tidbit about the Alamos church? I'm always ready for more crazy. All right. Now, Tony Alamo in particular had a flair for fashion. He loved himself some good clothes. I mean, what preacher doesn't? And he liked to dabble in lots of different things. He decided to dabble in the fashion industry. Now, it turns out Tony was actually pretty good, and he had a good eye for designing things that famous people would want to wear. Now, Eden, I don't know if you remember in the 1980s these jean jackets that celebrities like Mr. T and Michael Jackson would wear, where it was like bedazzled and would have like the airbrushing on the back, and it would say things like, Hollywood! I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes. Those are called Alamo jackets. No fucking way. Absolutely fucking way. God damn it. These were jackets that Tony Alamo designed and then were produced by members of his church, basically working in sweatshop-like conditions or slave labor conditions. They would work like 10 to 14 hours a day for no pay, just for basic room and board at the church's compound. And even more horrific is that... Tony Alamo uh, has stated, I found a quote where he said, I realized very soon that children have the perfect little fingers to be dazzled. Oh, no. And he basically started using the members' children. So you have these folks who've joined the church, right? And it's been about, the church has been around now for, we're talking almost 20 years. 
And in that time, his followers have received the Alamo's approval for marriage because they did kind of control their followers' life in that in that way. And they've started to have children. So you have a whole generation of kids who are being brought up in this cult. And the Alamos pay for their education, quote unquote. They educate them at the compound. They control what the kids learn. And they basically receive the equivalent of like a sixth grade education. And then they're sent to work at the various businesses that the Alamos own. Wonderful. Yep. Yep. Super crazy. Um, for our listeners, if you want to check out these fashion jackets, uh, I would say Google Alamo Jackets Mr. T or even the Michael Jackson Bad album cover. That jacket he's wearing, that's super cool with all the buckles. That was a custom piece that Tony Alamo designed for Michael Jackson. That is just so crazy. Yep, super crazy and dark. <laughs> and I love Michael Jackson, so I, I knew immediately what you were talking about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so the jackets really were this sort of like bank money-making machine for Alamo and his church. Um, they continued to use the money to publish religious tracts, and they started distributing tapes of their sermons. Uh, with assistance from some other church members, they started produ- to produce records and tapes. And then they even managed to get uh, national televised ministry up and running in the early 1980s as well. So far, this sounds like a scammy, exploitive cult. Well, things are about to go even crazier. And I mean crazy, crazy in the world of cult crazy. See, in 1980, Susan Alamo was diagnosed with breast cancer. And when she died two years later, Tony basically went completely off the deep end. His sermons became a lot more paranoid and apocalyptic. He started making strange proclamations that there was a Catholic conspiracy to destroy their church, that the world was going to end unless the followers cut themselves off from the rest of the community. Susan's death was caused by black magic, he said. The Pope had cursed her, and that's why she died. Damn that Pope. Damn that Pope. The power's in the ring. Destroy it, and all will be well again. (laughs) Power's in the ring. Uh, Tony went on to say that he had actually had revelations from God, and God had said that Susan would rise from the dead. He decided that because of these revelations, he was going to display her embalmed body at the compound, and he left it there for six months, and he forced his followers to hold 24-hour vigils by her body weird no this is reminding me of my story of the the catholic orphanage mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where they put the girl's body on display yep Ugh. now eventually when susan didn't rise from the dead alamo decided to enter her body but first he had to build a big ass heart-shaped mausoleum on the, the church's compound to inter susan of course he did because he has money no one else does yep exactly and he also had followers continue their 24-hour visual outside the mausoleum for the next year. My God. So along with all of these more paranoid and intense sermons, Alamo's personality also starts to go off the deep end and he becomes more erratic. He starts to angrily explode at followers for the slightest infraction. And he also starts strictly disciplining followers' children. So he starts demanding corporal punishment for kids who misbehave. In some cases, he would claim that a child was possessed by the devil and needed it beaten out of him. God, come on. Really? Yeah. And there was like the typical, like very disturbing stories you hear from survivors where, you know, there was a girl who suffered from epilepsy and Alamo said, no, it was the devil. We need to do an exorcism. Well, I mean, it was epilepsy. So, of course, it's always the devil. Always the devil. So like horrible things like that start happening at the compound. 
uh, he also starts to exert a whole lot more control directly over his followers' lives. So they would always make decisions around or approve like couples who could get married, what the kids were taught in school. But now he kind of takes this iron fist approach. He starts telling people, you're going to get married or you're going to get divorced and your wife is going to marry me because you misbehaved. What the fuck? I mean, I, I don't know why I'm at all surprised because I know how <laughs> cults work and I've watched a ton of things about cults, <laughs> but it just it still pisses me off. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he also changed what the kids were learning in school. Instead of teaching them basic things, he only started teaching them religious lessons. So no more reading, writing, or arithmetic. It was all, here's how you get to know Jesus as your Lord and personal Savior. Oh, also, and, and Father Tony. <sighs> and it got kind of crazy and extreme at a certain points where he started punishing people. Like I mentioned, he would dissolve marriages between followers and then marry the newly available women. Because remember, adultery is a sin according to this cult so you have to be married in order to have sex with each other and uh, was he marrying multiple women at once i mean eden of course he was okay. <laughs> he's a cult leader who's gone insane they always have their own harem i know it's, exactly yeah. and this is the time where this starts so basically he says yep you know what god says that that polygamy is authorized uh Gay people are the tools of Satan, and most horrifically, actually, hold on before I get to that part. I'll save that part, that horrific part, because it's, I need a moment. Um, <laughs> the other horrible things he does to his followers are uh, controlling their basic necessities, too. So he would say things like, some people aren't allowed to wear clothes. Some people aren't allowed to eat meals with the group. And then it became, some people aren't allowed to eat. Some people aren't allowed water. Some people are only allowed water. So these extreme controlling techniques he started to apply and force at yeah. his compounds. By the mid-1980s, so it had been about two or three years since Susan had passed, Alamo was still continuing to rake in millions of dollars from his various enterprise. His estimated net worth was close to $60 million. Wow. Um, as a result, he started spending less and less time at the, the compound, but that didn't change anything about the strict control he had over his followers. So this is the point where he's, you know, marrying all these women. And this is when he says, okay, God tell, has told me that polygamy is, is something we can do. And if you, ha you have to earn the right to have multiple wives, you need to be able to support them. I'm going to take more wives. That's when he starts saying that gay people are tools of the devil. Uh, and then most horrifically, he believed that girls were fit for marriage, repeatedly saying that, quote, consent is puberty. Um, yeah, I was not the least bit surprised by you saying that because yeah. the majority of the cults that I've seen, that's a thing. They're young. They're marrying these young, like six year old girls. Mm -hmm. And some of them are even related to them, but mm -hmm. they just don't give a fuck. So sure enough, he takes a bunch of wives and he kind of breaks his own rules and says that even, you know, girls as young as eight can be wives. So it's just at the point where it's in that inevitable train to hell that all cults end up on eventually. Thankfully, at this point, people are like, fuck this guy. And they start leaving the church. Good. There were always a couple folks who would leave at once a year, but they would kind of leave and, 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 and never speak to anyone from the cult again. It was more of a, they were kind of terrified and they didn't want anything to do with Alamo. In the 1980s, you start seeing people who are leaving the church, who have kids in the church, who want to bring him down. They just don't really know how. Now, that all changed in the, in the mid-1980s when church members who left realized that they needed to hit Tony where it hurt most, and that was in the wallet. So... 
they go to the IRS and they tell the IRS all about Alamo's corrupt business practices. And you got to love it that the tax man has taken down so many criminals really where it hurts. Like <laughs> That's true. Right? It's like Al Capone, Tony Alamo, so many people. So the IRS basically looks at the church's tax-exempt status, and they decide that they are going to revoke it. And they revoke it retroactively, which means that basically from like, I believe it was from like the mid-70s through the 1980, mid-1980s, they say the church was not a tax-exempt organization because it had all of these other businesses it was running. And they send Tony Alamo a $14 million tax bill. Holy crap. Right. Now, if that wasn't bad enough for Tony, the IRS also alerts the Labor Department. And the Labor Department investigates Alamo's various businesses. And they discover that, oh, look at that. He's violated the Fair Labor, da- Labor Act because he hadn't been issuing any paychecks to his employees. Let alone the fact that he had, like, children working. Exactly. So all that kind of happens. And then it greatly starts to reduce the, his popularity and the size of the church. By 1994... Alamo is forced to declare bankruptcy, and most of his business ventures are shutting down. He's also sentenced to four years in prison for tax evasion. Now, before the IRS can actually come in and seize property from the church, Tony, in, from jail, tells his followers, okay, you got to take all, everything of value out of the compound and hide it. And they do, because he still has uh, several hundred followers at this point. They go so far as to even break into Susan's mausoleum. And he instructs his followers to steal her body. So basically, when the uh, authorities arrive to raid the compound, they find it ransacked, nothing of value, and that Susan Alamo's crypt has been smashed open and that her coffin is gone. Now, Susan still has the daughter from her one of her previous marriages who demands the return of her mother's body. Well, yeah. Alamo's like, no. He just straight up refuses. And this goes on for seven years. Oh, God. He's not going to create a rocket and uh, send her body to like the moon or whatever, is he? No. Science is the devil, Aiden. You know that. Okay, good. So we'll just leave that for your other guy that you did a story on. (laughs) Eventually, when authorities threaten Alamo with more jail time, he relents and returns Susan Alamo's body to her daughter, and she was properly interred. Meanwhile, Alamo's in prison. He's still trying to recruit church members, but it's not really going so well. He sees his membership numbers drop from the peak of like several thousand people uh, in the late 80s to only about 200 followers or so. Uh, However, even though he's in jail, he's still controlling every aspect of their spiritual and financial lives. And he keeps collecting wives. Um, I definitely read a couple disturbing stories of, you know, girls who will be brought to the federal prison that Alamo was in and told that they were going to get married and that she needed to prepare her herself for, for his release. Like, just crazy ass shit. Weird. I don't, I still don't understand that. And like. I, I really don't. Well, and this is like the other creepy thing that they would do to these kids is that it would be like, okay, you've been selected to be his bride. Don't tell anyone. If you tell, so like this one story was particularly heartbreaking of these two girls who had grown up in the in the cult and they were best friends and one was selected at like twelve to be his bride and she says it because she looked much younger she looked like she was about ten which is gross and when she told her best friend who was a couple years older her best friend was like oh yeah I've been his bride for two years now too I'm like what the fuck oh no uh uh yeah so. Tony's eventually released from jail in 1998, but it's not going to be for long. 
there's even more former church man- members who are coming forward because now it's the 90s and these kids who grew up in the church are starting to come forward. And they start telling authorities about all of the awful things that Alamo's done, including child abuse and physical assaults, aside from all his financial crimes. So he gets out of prison. He has about 100 followers left. He abandons the compound in northwestern Arkansas and moves completely to the southern stronghold in Falk. Now, he names himself the head of a smaller new church that he calls Tony Alamo's Christian Ministries and continues to preach the same message, claiming that the government's actions were in league with the Catholics and they're all mechanizations of Satan's will. Of course they are, because why not? Exactly. And here's the fucked up thing. He's still such a name that his sermons get picked up by dozens of radio stations across the U.S. Oh, no. Even some as far, far flung as Africa and the Philippines. And his followers continue to distribute all his controversial, trashy words in printed literature for their cult. That is nuts. Mm-hmm. Uh, things definitely take a turn uh, by the early, t- by the mid to 2000s. In 2007, the Southern Poverty Law Center added Tony Alamo Christian Ministries to its hate group list, mostly due to its severe anti-Catholic and anti-gay rhetoric. In 2008, state and federal officials finally had enough information from a two-year investigation into child abuse and child pornography accusations to raid Alamo's Falk compound. They raid the compound. They arrest him for several charges, including violating the Mann Act, which is the federal statute that was enacted to stop the trafficking of girls and women across state lines for the purposes of sex. Hmm. So while he's accused of sexual abuse, they know they can put him away for a long time just on the Man Act violations alone. So at trial, uh, several brave women come forward and they testify about being sexually abused by Alamo, some of them going back as late as the early 1980s. Wow. Um, They talk about being forced to become his wives, some as young as eight years old. Alamo's found guilty of 10 counts of taking underage girls across state lines for sex on July 24th, 2009. In November of that year, he's sentenced to 175 years in prison and fined $250,000. Wow. In February 2014, a state judge awarded $525 million in actual and punitive damages to seven former members of the Tony Alamo Christian Ministries. Most of these members were women who were abused by Alamo. This is the largest personal injury judgment in Arkansas history to date. That's awesome. Yep. Yeah. And Tony Alamo died in federal prison in North Carolina at age 82 in 2017. So... Uh, Eden, thoughts on the crazy-ass story of Tony Alamo and his cult? Where to even begin? Because that guy is nutty as hell, and it goes, it really goes with a lot of things that I've seen on cults already. Mm-hmm. Like, especially the multiple wives, the marrying of children, and you know, everything else. Like, everything is for him, and then leaving nothing for the people that he's supposed to be helping. It... It drives me crazy to think that people actually fall for this shit, but Mm -hmm. I mean, we can always say, looking from the outside, how crazy it is. But if we were in that position too, you know, what would we do? Do we really know? Can we say for certain that we wouldn't fall for the bullshit? Yeah, it all depends on on where you're at in your life. And like having, if you don't have a strong support system, there's no one to help you out. It's very, I think it's very easy to fall under the sway of somebody who's going to use and abuse you. And then after you already have that connection, 
with him or with you know people in that group it's hard to break away from because the second you start being like wait something isn't right they'll convince you again that it's not i've been in relationships like that and it's the same thing with a cult where they will completely gaslight you and then you start doubting yourself mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i also think too i always in particular feel awful for people who are so young and or who are born into a cult yes it's it's startling I always I always find it to be fascinating and startling when you read about a celebrity who you're like, oh, okay. And then you're like, oh, they were born to a cult. Yep. Hmm. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And it's just it's it's a, such an interesting, horrible way to grow up. And it's one of those I think really overlooked things because I feel like a lot of times we talk about people escaping cults, but we don't really talk about like what happens with the rest of their life, like how they how they can rebuild their life and to be a happy and productive member of society, you know? Exactly. And I mean, how many people do come out of that okay? It's got to be a tough thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, I just thought this story, it popped up so much when I was looking at crime in, in Arkansas and how, how massive it was and the fact that he had this cult church that big and made a lot of money and I've never heard of it. He made jackets for celebrities and it's not something you ever hear. Oh yeah, it's the cult jacket. Like it's so bizarre. I don't think I've ever heard of Tony Alamo before. I know, right? I'm like, oh nuts. But yeah, that that's my story. Uh my sources uh for today were Arkansas.com, Encyclopedia of Arkansas, the New York Times, and this great website called TonyAlamoNews.com, which is basically a website that was devoted to bringing down his cult, and it's still active and has some really uh, amazing articles about the activities of the Alamo Church. Very nice. All right. I guess we will take a short break, and we'll be back with my story. And we're back. We're back. And I have quite the story to tell you, Nicole. Do you have a weird news story for me? But first, I have my weird news story. Excellent. Which I totally did not forget about or anything. <laughs> I just love them so much. I look forward to it. Well, there was this one that I, um, that I started doing, but then I lost the title to it. So I was like, okay, well, I guess I can't do that because I just like screenshot stuff that I find. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it was about like uh, the first dinosaur butthole to ever be preserved was found what yeah it's so weird and it turned out to be more like a like a cloaca mm-hmm. and it was like super weird so it's like for pooping and peeing and everything else but the news story that i have for you instead comes from the new york post oh is it classy classy oh yes of course and it's 15 people catch covid19 after reportedly attending cat's birthday party <laughs> oh my goodness Yes. The first line is just like, who the hell writes this? But it's great. This party wasn't the cat's meow. Oh my God, the post. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So 15 people contracted COVID-19 in a small Chilean town after reportedly attending a birthday party for a cat. It was unclear when exactly the party took place in the exclusive coastal enclave of Santo Domingo. But local media reported that 10 people attended, all of whom became sick. The other five infected people are reportedly family and friends of the cat's owner. My God. The birthday kitty did not contract the disease. My God. (laughs) That's right, because cats and dogs can get COVID. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, Then we have a... 
that's the thing that kills me so much is like people who are like are like oh it's fine blah, blah, blah. i'm like no this is serious it could happen even at a cat's birthday party exactly even in like the most wonderful of places a cat's birthday party mm-hmm. anything can happen what happens at a cat's birthday party does not stay at a cat's birthday party you take that shit home with you <laughs> so there here's a quote when i heard it was a cat's birthday party i thought it was a joke that they were probably trying to hide something francisco alvarez the regional health secretary in valparaiso told radio bio bio the daily mail reported we have corroborated it with at least six of the 15 infected people who told us the same thing he added Alvarez said he found it hard to believe that people were still holding gatherings despite stern warnings from authorities about the pandemic. It's complicated and it's a little incomprehensible, especially considering that we have said in every way and emphasized is that if people are going to meet, they need to take safety measures, he said. And that's the end of the article. But what the fuck? Mm -mm. Nope. I blame the cat. I blame that cat. He knew. He knew what would happen, but he insisted on having that goddamn birthday party because <laughs> cats are assholes. <laughs> they only think about themselves. Listen, I know cats are assholes, but I feel like it wasn't that cat's fault. He was like, no, I just want a small party. It's you and me, mom. Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, we're having oh, sure. everyone there. Take the cat's side like you always do, Nicole. I mean, I'm a cat lady. Got to represent. <laughs> Alrighty, so I'm sorry that the uh, the dinosaur butthole story didn't work out, but you know. I mean, I think that's all I need to know about that story, honestly. It, yeah, it was pretty amazing, and like some of the lines in that article too was like, "Who the hell wrote this?" Anyway, now we'll get to my haunting story. All right. So my story this week takes place in Eureka Springs, Arkansas. It has a relatively small population with 2,073 people and has an area of 6.90 square miles. The city is in Carroll County and was incorporated in 1880. The city, from what I was able to see in pictures, looks beautiful, and it really captures that natural beauty of Arkansas that you spoke about last week, Nicole. Mm. It's situated in the northwest portion of the state in the Ozarks, so you know it's got to be pretty. I know. I love the Ozarks. They're beautiful. I've never been, but I want to go. And plus, I watched that show on Netflix. Such a good show. It is good. (laughs) So um, it probably also accounts for its low population being in the Ozarks since it's more of like a touristy place. Yeah, seasonal. Exactly. So the really cool thing about Eureka Springs is that the whole town is on the National Register of Historic Places. Hmm. Uh, That being said, there's a lot of landmarks here to see. It's labeled as a Victorian resort village and has been called the Magic City and also Stair Step Town because of the the mountainous terrain. And the streets also wind and go up and down, so that's another reason for that name. Some of the landmarks that I mentioned earlier would be the Blue Springs Heritage Center, uh, Christ of the Ozarks, which is one of the many huge Jesus statues that you find like all around the world. Yeah. Uh, Lake Leatherwood Park, Onyx Cave, which is slightly outside of town, Turpentine Creek Wildlife Refuge, and our stop for today, the Crescent Hotel. So this location is said to be ridiculously haunted, and I can't wait to dive into all of that with you. But first, as everyone should know by now, we need to go start with a little history lesson to set the stage. So to start, this place was established in 1886, so not long after the town was incorporated. It was built by the Eureka Springs Improvement Company and the Frisco Railroad. 
The total cost was around $300,000 back then, which I do not know what that would be today because the inflation calculator that I use wouldn't go back that far. I actually, like, I tried, and I just kept clicking and clicking and clicking, and then I read at the top, it was like, can't go past 1908, and I'm like, oh, thanks. Thanks for telling me now. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they used a lot of local resources and even used special cards that they made themselves to lug the magnesium limestone from the quarry. Everything about this place was a big deal uh, for the time, like Edison bulbs and just electricity in general and steam heating that was in this place so it was like pretty fancy for the time oh yeah it was it was very lavish uh some of this of what's there is still a big deal today like all of the very lavish furniture all the huge porches and balconies mm -hmm. and just the sheer size of this building it's also um, there's also like this massive fireplace in the lobby I tried to find some specs, but I came up empty-handed. The only thing that I can say as to the size of the property is that it's set on 27 acres. So it is beyond massive. Its original name was the 1886 Crescent Hotel and Spa. It's a large Victorian building, uh, like most of the architecture in town, and was made as a resort for anyone rich enough to stay in such a crazy, posh destination. However, things didn't go too well for this place at first. Problems started early when a stonemason fell from what is now the room 218 and he died mm. on impact. Yikes, that sounds awful way to go. Yes, uh, and there is more on that later because as you probably guessed, he's still hanging around the place. After its opening, it became kind of difficult to keep up with the structure and it slowly started to fall into disrepair as these buildings tend to do. Also the depression hit and it did not help at all. Uh, and it's a big reason this place kept closing and reopening. So the 1886 Crescent Hotel and Spa was already closed and reopened as uh, an all-girls college in 1908 as the Crescent College and Conservatory for Young Women. This also lasted only for a short time and was already closed down by 1924. And again, there was another falling death, but this time it was a student at the college who fell from the top floor out a window. She may have been pushed, but no one's really sure what happened there. Ooh. Yeah. So it began its new life next as a junior college instead in 1930. But as you may have guessed, this also didn't pan out and had an even shorter lifespan than the previous school or the extravagant hotel. The junior college only lasted for four years and closed in 1934. So that's only like two graduating classes from that junior yeah, college. Yeah, not so not so grand of a, an alumni association for that. Not really, no. It's like they get back, uh, they go to other reunions and it's like, well, there's 12 of us. There's Jim and there's Bob and it was nice seeing you guys. Okay, this time yeah, next bye. year. <laughs> um, so Wikipedia said it was leased as a summer hotel which i really don't know what that means i'm assuming it means that it's only open during the summer maybe yeah probably like a seasonal resort type thing because it's not worth it to stay open in the winter time because no one's gonna come there exactly because i'm pretty sure it's in the mountains it's gonna be cold that lasted about three years before closing down again and coming back as something else since this place has more identities than any than eddie murphy in well pretty much any eddie murphy film from the 90s Accurate. So this time around, in 1937, a new owner took over and decided to turn it into a hospital and health spa. 
This guy's name was Norman G. Baker. Have you heard about this guy at all? Mm, no, I don't think so. Okay, well, here's where it gets really fucking weird, but still pretty par for the course as far as this podcast is concerned. <laughs> so Norman Baker was this millionaire radio personality, vaudeville star, and inventor, and he has a crazy story, which I'll tell you a little bit about. Norman's notable inventions were something called a calliophone, which is pretty much like a steam organ thing that sounds like a calliope. Okay. Don't ask because it's, it's just weird. He's weird. Anyway, the crazy thing about this guy with his inventions, and yes, I just use air quotes, was that in the 1930s, he promoted this crazy cure for cancer that was obviously fake since we all know today that there's still no cure for cancer. So... I couldn't find exactly what this cure was, but I do know that it was some sort of like tincture and parts of this mysterious uh, and faker than Kim Kardashian's lips cancer cure uh, were found in the hotel later on after like when they were doing renovations, they found like pieces of these still around. Really? And also like pieces of tumors and like jars and shit. Gross, but intriguing. Yes. So all I really know is that he set up shop in the basement of the hotel and was swindling people out of their life's, their life savings. So basically he had like a pretty good snake oil business going on. Oh, yeah. He did end up being jailed uh, for a while. Uh, and besides that, he seemed to be like, you know, an all around shitty human being. Mm. He was said to go on anti-Semitic rants, which you think would make him Mel Gibson's hero. But he also went on plenty of anti-Catholic rants as well. Nope. So he was also said to have had sex with his mistress live on the air during one of his broadcasts during his broadcasting career. Oh, my. That sounds... Yeah. Very scandalous. Mm-hmm. So the shittiest thing that he did, other than the fake cancer cure, because it's kind of hard to top that one, was this hospital in general. I mentioned the many careers of Mr. Baker. And of all those... I never mentioned him being a doctor, but that's what he started calling himself when he made this hospital. Of course. The real kicker there, though, is that this was his second hospital that he had done this at. What? This, yeah, this other hospital was in Iowa, and he was actually run out of town there for practicing medicine without a license, which is why he came here and started a new hospital. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He had this secret tunnel where he'd get rid of the bodies of all these patients that he was supposed to be curing who ended up dying uh, because he knew nothing about medicine. Uh, he sent letters to their families that he'd previously had the patients sign uh, and that would tell them, oh, yeah, we're doing great, you know, whatever, love you. And then later he would write another letter to their families letting them know that their loved ones had passed away well after the fact. No. Yep. The hospital shut down in 1940 when Baker was indicted on federal charges for mail fraud, of all things, and was sent to prison for four years. Uh, if you want to know more about this crazy dude, I suggest you look him up because he's literally just the fucking worst. <laughs> this is a very abbreviated version of events. So anyway, it wasn't until six years later that the hotel was purchased by four men. John Constantine, Master of the Dark Arts. Just kidding. That's a different John Constantine. Um, Herbert Shutter, Herbert Byfield, and Dwight Nichols. Um, 
information was a little scarce on what happened to everyone, uh, but I do know that the whole place almost burnt to the ground in a fire on March 15th of 1967, and the only living owner at that point was Dwight Nichols. Okay. I don't know what caused the fire. It was Everything was very vague, but that's what I know. So the current owners, Marty and Elise, I think the name's pronounced Ronig, uh, bought the place in 1997 for $1.3 million, which would be nearly double that today because inflation is just crazy. So I listed Marty as a current owner, even though technically that isn't true since he's no longer with us. But I feel like since he and his wife bought the place together, he still owns it. I tried to find more history on this place, but it's so ghost-centric that it was pretty difficult. Even things that said they were like the history of the hotel turned out to be documents, uh, documentation on like the hauntings. Interesting. So it's sort of like a slim historical record, but everybody's talking about them ghosts. Exactly. So I figured that was okay anyway, because that's what everyone is really here for. And this place has some good ones. So I think I mentioned at the beginning of this that this place is lauded as America's most haunted hotel. And it's been investigated by a lot of TV show paranormal teams. So yes, I think Zach has been here. Uh, I guess we'll start with room 218, which has a lot of activity. I mentioned that stonemason earlier that fell mm -hmm. to his death. Uh, and that's the spirit that's said to haunt room 218. They called him Michael from what I found, but I'm not sure if that's really his name or just what they named him. He's known for a lot of crazy poltergeist activity. You can hear the replay of him falling through the ceiling in this room, which has got to be terrifying. What? Yes, but less terrifying than the phantom fucking hands that come out of the bathroom mirror. Nope. No, thank you. I can brush my own damn teeth and or strangle myself. Thank you very much. Nope. Nope. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. No way in hell. Bathroom time is so, sacred time, Michael. Exactly. No, I do not need a helping hand. Thank you. Um. So he can also be a bit of a dick with quote unquote normal haunting stuff as well. Like he'll slam the door. Uh, but then he'll also keep it shut so you can't get in or out. I get being an angry ghost and all, but it's called human decency. <laughs> well, unhuman Stop decency being because... Yeah. <laughs> Formerly human decency. Formerly human decency. Perfect. So the uh, the crystal dining room is another big spot for the spirits to appear. Uh, some of these being your favorite kind, Nicole. So people have seen what appear to be completely normal people in Victorian clothing, dancing and hanging around this room, even after closing. So classy, but so scary. <laughs> a lot of people have seen a Victorian man sitting in this room and saying that he, quote, just saw the most beautiful girl last night and I'm waiting for her to return. Good luck, buddy. You'll be waiting a while. God, that's such a tragic residual haunting. <laughs> I know. Like the worst, like, paranormal uh, misconnection ever. Right. Yes, it's the misconnections on Craigslist, but this is ghost list, I guess. <laughs> One employee was looking in the mirror in this room and saw what looked to be a Victorian bride and groom behind her gazing at each other before the man turned to make eye contact with her. And then oh. they disappeared. Creepy uh, ghost three-way for your wedding night. I don't like it. Yes. 
And she quit right after this. And I really don't blame her because that's really creepy. A hundred percent. Like there is no shame in that game. And you're like, nope, it's creepy as fuck. I got to get out. Mm-mm. Oh, yeah. One year around Christmas time, they set up a big Christmas tree and they decorated it, put presents under it, the whole nine yards. It moved overnight by itself to the other side of the room. And when they saw it in the morning, the spirits had also set chairs in a circle around the tree. <gasps> yeah. Mm-mm. Yep. Yeah, a little too creepy for me. But at least they were, you know, in the holiday spirits. So, well, there were holiday spirits. Who knows? Ugh, they got to burn that tree. Tell you what. Yep. They also like to scatter the menus around in that room as well. Uh, our good friend, the so-called Dr. Baker, can even be seen here haunting the hotel lobby because if he was a creeper in life, he just had to be a creeper in death. Uh, if you see, like, a guy in a purple shirt, it's probably him. So apparently you can also hear the sounds of a gurney being pushed down the halls by a nurse in the hotel as well. Mm. In the basement, which used to be where the good doctor did his quote-unquote work, is now, it's like a laundry room. But his freezer and autopsy table are still down there, which I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want any reminders of that asshole lying around. Nope. There's the spirit of a woman known as Theodora in room 419. She's usually seen by the housekeeping staff and actually, according to my one source, introduces herself as a cancer patient of Baker's. What? Yeah, and apparently after having like a brief chat, she just disappears. Oh. She just wants to be like, hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm a patient here. Okay, so how are you? All right, bye. And just disappears. That's like the most subtly creepy ghosting I've heard in a while, actually. (laughs) I mean, she seems really nice, but still, like, that's that's scary. Um, The kitchen is also haunted, as the cook reportedly saw a little boy in knickers and other old-timey garb uh, just skipping around in there, which is a big note for me. Creepy children is where I draw a line, a Mm -hmm. big line. I agree with you. Nope. So he also said that all the pots and pans came flying off their hooks at him, uh, which is nearly a word-for-word quote from him. Uh, one day when he just came in to start a shift, that happened. Turn on the lights and bam. Mm. A couple that stayed there told one of the staff that on their second night there, they went to sleep, only covered up by the sheets, but woke up in the middle of the night to find they had been tucked in with the comforter by a ghost in the middle of the night. I hate that so much. You're going to hate it more because they pulled down the comforter and went back to sleep. But that wasn't the end of it. This is one persistent ghost because they were tucked in three more times after this. No, no. The second time it happened, you're like, I need to call the front desk and get a new goddamn room. Right. But the ghost is just like, just let me love you. <laughs> you're not snug as a fuck. Exactly. It's like, I used to be a mother. Just let me do this. Let me do this. Yeah. So really fucking creepy. More so ghostly creepy. tuckings for you. <laughs> ghostly tuckings. <laughs> so... Another set of guests were greeted in the hall when stepping off the elevator on the second floor by a man in Victorian garb, yet again, who was quite polite and asked if they needed help finding their room. He led them to their correct room, unlocked the door for them, and then waited outside as they entered. When they realized that they still needed to tip him and went to get some money for that, they turned around and he was gone. The next day, when they tried to get back into their room... The key that they had wouldn't work, 
So they went down to the front desk and were told that they had the wrong key. Weird. Yeah, they told the desk clerk about the guy from the previous day, only to find out that no such man worked there in the present day. Uh, There are more stories out there about this place, but these were the ones that I could find, and they were also some of the more interesting ones. I don't really know what's going on with all these falling deaths, but there was yet another one that I found out about that happened not too long ago. This one was a man named William Thomas, and he fell to his death from the fourth-story balcony at the age of 62, and this happened in 2017. So we've still got more people falling to their deaths. Weird. Yeah. So this place sounds pretty crazy, and I kind of want to go there, but another part of me is like, no way. So what do you think, Nicole? It seems it borders just on the edge of like sinister for me, if that makes sense. Like it seems like it's all fun and games, and then somebody gets pushed out a window is what it kind of feels like to me. That's absolutely true. I, I am going to pass and not stay at this particular hotel in Eureka Springs. Um, but I have heard Eureka Springs is lovely and I would not be opposed to exploring it. I might go check out that huge ass fireplace and some of oh, the. Yeah, lo- the hotel itself is beautiful. Yeah, but I don't think I would stay there. Maybe just go there, you know, for the day and just look around at it and don't go on any of the balconies. Exactly. Or get too close to any windows. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That sounds like a safe plan. Or take a nap because you will have ghostly tuckings. Nope, nope. No ghostly tuckings. That is not a fun trip for me. Nope. Alrighty, so that is my story. And my sources were Wikipedia, atlasobscura.com, historichotels.org, crescent-hotel.com, smithsonianmag.com, and legendsofamerica.com. Nice. Very nice. Alrighty, so I guess that's our show for today. If you would like to get in contact with us, you can always reach out to us at our email, which is roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. You could stop by our social media sites, which include Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. On Facebook and Instagram, we're Roadside Horror Show, and on Twitter, we're Roadside Horror. You could visit our website, which is roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. And if you're feeling generous, please rate and review our podcast in whatever way you can. It really helps get our show out there for folks who might be looking for something a little creepy and a little funny to listen to. And yes, that's definitely something that we would love for you to do. We would also like to thank E. Massey for our intro and outro music and Yox Rocks Designs for our logo. So until next time, guys, try not to fall to your death and creep creep on, on, creeping creeping on. on.